from here they continue all the way into Europe, to Germany, to France, to the UK. This is where the place is coming together. This is, I think we can say this is where the East meets the West. The Chinese government has poured massive amounts of money into this project. And welcome to the Global Inquirer. Global Inquirer is an undergraduate research podcast that takes a look at case studies to explain how global trends are impacting real lives. I'm your host, Nico Marsage, and today I'm joined by two researchers, Derek Wong and Liam Kraft. Derek and Liam, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourselves? Sure thing. My name is Derek, and I'm a second-year student at the university. Uh, I'm an economics and math major, and I've been doing research with the Global Inquirer for about a year now. And my name is Liam. I'm a fourth-year foreign affairs and international economics major, and this is my first episode with the Global Inquirer. Yeah, a little bit of a visiting researcher, let's say. That's right. So today on the show, we're going to take a look at a case study of uh, the Korgos Dry Port, which is a dry port in Kazakhstan. And we're going to use this port to explain the larger global trend of both how ex-Soviet republics have positioned themselves geostrategically and the implications of a growing Chinese economic and political influence in this region. So, Derek, in our case study, we're going to take a look at the Korgos Dry Port in Kazakhstan. But can you orient us a little bit into where the Korgos Dry Port is and why it's important? Yeah, sure. So, as the name implies, it's not an actual port, but instead it's sort of this shipping hub for railways, especially for railroad transfers from cargo coming from China headed towards Europe. Um, traveling through the Central Asian region. So the Korgos Gateway is located in Kazakhstan, but it's very close to the border with China. It's basically sitting on the border between Kazakhstan and China and just a little bit north of Kyrgyzstan. So basically how it works is Chinese manufacturers ship their goods to the Korgos Gateway where their cargo tanks are basically picked up by these massive sprawling uh, cargo container movers and placed on trains headed towards uh, the rest of Europe. And so why is this dry port important? Like, why are we talking about it in our case study? It's important because the Chinese government has poured massive amounts of money into this project. Billions and billions of dollars of investment and a huge amount of political influence has been put in from the Chinese side into the Korgos Gateway to try and make it a successful venture. And I think it represents the Chinese desire to gain more economic influence and more regional political influence in the Central Asian region. So not only is it a very important economic artery for companies trying to ship goods uh, into Europe, but it is also really important as a symbol of increasing Chinese political clout. Right. We've sort of talked about Chinese expansion in previous episodes, uh, specifically in Africa. And you also talked about another railway, coincidentally enough. In, in, in Ethiopia, I think it's an interesting global phenomenon. And, you know, the thing about the thing that's so interesting about Korgos is that uh, right now it's only shipping about, say, 6,200 cargo containers per year. But they're looking to boost that up to maybe 500,000 per year by 2020. So this is sort of this very long term project that the Chinese are really hoping to turn into a central shipping route, because the time it takes to ship something by rail to Europe is about half the time it takes to ship it by sea. And whereas our previous episode, when we talked about Ethiopia, it didn't relate too much to China's One Belt, One Road initiative, Korgos Dry Port sits right at the center of, 
you know, this one belt, one road initiative that China has been implementing and continues to push. Yeah, definitely. And the One Belt, One Road initiative is this huge sprawling initiative by the Chinese government to try and link up trade routes between China and Europe through what was originally the Silk Road back in China's ancient past. So a land route stretching through Central Asia, mainly composed of railroads, that increases economic and political ties between all of those countries in the region. And these countries in Central Asia are obviously extremely important to Chinese investment. But I'm curious, like, how did a lot of these Central Asian countries get to where they are today? You know, a lot of them were ex-Soviet republics. How did they come to be such close allies, at least economically, with China? So the history of this region is actually really, really interesting. And so we sat down with Dean Sean Lyons, who's also a professor uh, in the Department of Middle Eastern Languages and Cultures here at UVA. And he gave us sort of this brief overview of what the region's history looked like. Well, we have to bear in mind that the Central Asian states were once upon a time um, an, an ethnic unit or an ethnic cultural unit, which historians call Turkestan. So in the distant past, there was this notion of this region as a, a unitary uh, geographic cultural region. And so we see from what Dean Lyons has told us that this is a region with a shared cultural, historical, ethnic, linguistic background that they have a lot in common. But with the rise of the Soviet Union, they sort of were split into individual republics. And so now that the Soviet Union has collapsed, they have this new opportunity in order to forge their own paths within the region. And Dean Lyons talks a little bit about what it looked like in the Central Asian Republic's when the Soviet Union fell. And I think he has a very interesting perspective on what that kind of looked like for the people living in those countries at that time. That period is extraordinarily sorrowful. It is so sorrowful as I began to uh, recall my years in the former Soviet Union, uh, 1991 and 1992. Yes, it is the collapse of the Soviet Union and the tragedy of that is the dislocation, the disruption, uh, the demise of services, the, con the confusion and chaos of that period was so overwhelming. I was living in Tashkent in 1991 and 1992, so I can remember uh, the daily, um, again, sorrow of that period. I mean, we think of it as a historical problem, the end of an empire, but for the citizens uh, throughout the Soviet Union, it meant hyperinflation, uh, sudden employment, rubles that are absolutely valueless. Uh, it meant supplies and services that once were distributed from Eastern Europe through Russia to Central Asia, all of that ended. So when we look at that period, uh, the end of the Soviet Union, we should bear in mind it was an incredibly painful period. So it sounds like a period of a lot of chaos and a lot of confusion, but was there any kind of like sense of opportunity as well in some sense? Yes, absolutely. There were mm -hmm. individuals who sought to embrace this opportunity for independence, mm -hmm. who in fact advocated for Central Asia's independence mm -hmm. uh, from the Soviet Union. That's on the eve of its demise. Mm -hmm. 
But what quickly happened was, as I mentioned, uh, the re-emergence of the Communist Party official leadership. And they did not disappear with independence. They quickly sought to re-establish themselves in these uh, pseudo-new uh, democratic governments and uh, in many ways, the opportunity for an exploration of independence by these more uh, optimistic individuals was was quashed. Mm. And I see evidence that these types of uh, ethnic, linguistic-based republics as the, the basis of the modern Central Asian states uh, continues. That the states are committed to uh, a separate identity for Uzbekistan, Kazakh, Kyrgyzstan, etc. So we can see that after the fall of the Soviet Union, there was a great deal of chaos, that's true. But there was also a kind of opportunity for these countries to create their own new economic relationships and political relationships within the region, and also a chance for them to reassert their own cultural identities, not as Soviet republics, but as uh, individual Central Asian countries with their own distinctive politics. Right. So as these individual Central Asian republics, how has each kind of navigated through the space of a lot of these big powers that exist of China to the east and Russia to the north and even U.S.? Well, specifically for Kazakhstan, it has essentially pursued what observers have called the multi-vector foreign policy. It sees itself as becoming an important country in the region as far as building the connectivity of the region, establishing Central Asia as not an imperial backwater of the Soviet Union or Russia, that is, uh, but rather establishing it as an important link between Asia and Europe. And it sees itself as playing a vital role in this. Mm -hmm. So if you look at the 1990s, President Nazarbayev he actually had the original vision for uh, reinvigorating the, the Silk Road, uh, the ancient trade routes between Asia and Europe by way of Kazakhstan. He also had the idea for a economic union, I emphasize economic union, um, in Central Asia with these five stands um, as a way of, of boosting trade internally as well. So Kazakhstan from its beginning as a country in the early 90s has been very committed to uh, this trade connectivity mm -hmm. uh, and economic connectivity in the region um, and across regions. So if you look at the present day, or at least in the last five years, we come to 2013 when President Xi Jinping visited Kazakhstan, announcing the One Belt, One Road initiative and attaining tremendous uh, enthusiastic support from Kazakhs yeah. uh, regarding the initiative, especially President Nazarbayev. Mm -hmm. And that's why the Korgos Gateway is so absolutely crucial to this whole project, because that is the first step in making this entire One Belt, One Road initiative work. The Korgos Gateway is the key connecting factor between the Chinese manufacturing economy and the European markets. For Chinese manufacturers to ship their goods to the European markets, you know, it could take anywhere from you know, 40 to 45 days to ship it by sea. And 
shipping it by air is prohibitively expensive, but shipping it by rail cuts the time in nearly half. And that's absolutely crucial for people like electronics manufacturers and uh, manufacturers of certain goods that need to get their products to market quickly. So economically, with this uh, massive investment in Kazakhstan and especially in the Korgos Gateway, that proves to be uh, the one of the defining projects of the whole One Belt, One Road initiative. They've gone so far as to build an entire town in the middle of the desert filled with supermarkets and schools and churches and uh, all kinds of amenities for a town of about 1,200 people, all meant to just operate this shipping center. So you can see the amount of political and economic capital that has gone into the project. And Kazakhstan has the goal, um, the explicitly stated goal of becoming one of the world's top 30 most competitive economies by 2050. And it needs to boost its trade in order to do this. So this is really an important aspect of Kazakhstan's development strategy. And, you know, it, geostrategically, it's sandwiched between the world's largest industrial producer, China, and uh, an incredibly large consumer market, which is Europe. So this initiative makes a lot of sense in many ways for Kazakhstan economically. Right. So it makes sense as far as the development policy. But what is the actual reception of Chinese influence, specifically in Kazakhstan? Right. Well, so the issue with Kazakhstan's engagement with China is that there are a lot of imbalances in the relationship, specifically with regards to uh, our case study, the Korgos uh, Gateway. There's less development on the Kazakhstan side of the border compared to the China side of the border, where there are shopping malls, hotels, uh, things of that sort. Whereas on the other side, there's only some small shops and warehouses on the Kazakh side. Additionally, the trade going through this dry port is heavily biased in China's favor. There's not much in the way of exports going from Kazakhstan to China. And some of these issues contribute to what has been anti-China sentiment in Kazakhstan. So given that there's a lot of anti-Chinese sentiment in a lot of these Central Asian republics, why not just turn to their northern neighbor, Russia? You know, what role does Russia play in the foreign policy of a lot of these Central Asian republics? Russia is actually the top security partner for the region and has been even since the Soviet Union fell. It's the only legitimate real um, security force in the region. And it also enjoys close political and cultural ties with the region uh, as well. So it's definitely a, a major actor. And the interplay of Russia and China in the region is is something that's very important to consider. Um, and I actually had the opportunity to speak with Dr. Richard Weiss of the Hudson Institute about the interplay of Russia and China in Central Asia. They cooperate better in Central Asia than any other region of the world. Um, elsewhere, it's a pretty hit or miss. And if they even if they do cooperate, it's not that closely. Whereas in Central Asia, their, their, their alignment is much stronger because it's, they, have, they share a common interest in terms of ensuring stability of the region, the governments there, and political systems opposing the spread of terrorism, limiting U.S. influence, limiting the influence of you know, Iran or other potential actors, mostly U.S., though. Economic development, they've got a pretty harmonious relationship. Uh, they, whenever there's a, an energy consortium, for example, in, in, in Kazakhstan or wherever, that even if it's dominated by Chinese companies, there's always going to be some Russian firm that has maybe 10% of the consortium so that Russia benefits. And the Russians 
leadership, I think, prudently realized that they don't have the, the wherewithal to dominate Central Asian economy they w could in the Soviet period. And so for them, it's convenient to, it, well, it's more acceptable to have China as your economic partner than, for example, Europe or particularly the U.S., where it's a little, where you'd have less control. Um, now, that some, some things could happen to change this. Um, I imagine if Chinese power continues to grow and influence and some Russians, more Russians will be concerned about this. Um, I would think that the Chinese have been eager to have Russia take the lead security role in the region so they don't have to deal with this burden. But if it looks like Russia is able to prevent, you know, anti-Chinese terrorism or some other source of instability in the region, then China would may have to take upon itself the role of regional military intervener. And that would uh, really concern, I think, a lot of Russians. So what we see is that Russia and China at present have a sort of division of labor in the sense that Russia is the most credible security partner um, for the region, whereas China is increasingly dominant economically in the region. And the Russians and Chinese both realize this. But there are a few risk factors that might change the dynamic a bit in the region. And Dr. White's had a few thoughts on that. Another concern we had was the transition in the governments. Uh, Uzbekistan just had a, a change in government. Kyrgyzstan has had several uh, the uh, uh, Kazakhstan itself is due for a change in the presidency because its leader is President uh, Nazarbayev is old, and at some point he'll have to retire or leave office. Um, but the Uzbek transition went surprisingly well. A lot of us feared that what would happen after Islam Karimov, the long, uh, decades-long serving president of the Republic, left. But so far, there hasn't been any major domestic upheavals, and its foreign policy, Uzbek foreign policy, if anything, has become more benign. So it's possible that the feared scenarios with Kazakhstan after uh, Nasrubayev leaves office have been exaggerated, and we've, you know, so uh, other sources of instability. You you mentioned if the Russia-China competition heats up, that could be one, although that doesn't look likely. There could be a worsening relations, you know, struggles between Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan for regional rivalry. But if it, again, the current trend is in the opposite direction. So it looks pretty stable as for now. So with growing Chinese power and influence in Central Asia, Russia could grow increasingly concerned about that influence. And we have to ask the question, as China develops greater economic interests in the region, uh, the Korgos Gateway being one of them, as it gains these interests, will it gain a greater interest in being closely participative in the security affairs of the region? Will it take greater interest in making sure that there's stability in the region? And risk factors like uh, Dr. White's mentioned are important to consider um, on this issue. So, Liam, you've just brought up sort of a big question that remains to be answered. And given our case study of the Korgos Gateway and the trend of, you know, how these ex-Soviet republics are positioning themselves ge geostrategically and the implications of Chinese expansion, what are some of the big takeaways of this episode? I think some of the big takeaways are 
how dynamic this region is, how quickly everything is changing in this region. Uh, we look at the Corgos Gateway as an example of the massive economic development that is happening in these Central Asian countries, the way they're looking to exploit their natural resources, the way they're positioning themselves as central shipping lanes between major economies. But also, this is sort of a case study in how um, the great powers of Russia, China, and the U.S. are also jockeying for influence among the Central Asian republics, looking to gain geopolitical influence, whether it's in security or it's within the economic sphere or the political sphere. Uh, you can see how this influence game is playing itself out among the Central Asian republics. And that'll do it for today's show. I want to thank Dr. Weitz and Professor Lyons for doing the interviews today, and Liam and Derek for doing this great research. Next week's episode will take us into Mexico to look at local Mexican law enforcement and corruption. And while you're at it, you can give us a rating and comment on iTunes. We really appreciate it. Also, check out our new blog content. It's on Medium and our new After Hours content, which takes a look at the previous episode and the next episode from the perspective of a lot of IRO, International Relations Organization, members. We'll see you next week.